Well, let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. We pray, Father, that as we come to these scriptures this morning, that you would deepen our love for you and so deepen our love one for another. Thanking you for your word and praying that it would bless and refresh us. For Jesus' sake, amen. This morning I'd like to begin with a true story. Just a few years ago in the United States, a pastor dressed up as a homeless man, wearing a winter jacket with holes, sporting a wig which gave him grey long hair and a shaggy grey beard. Next to him he placed a shopping trolley with some belongings and a receptacle for donations. Across the road was a camera. The camera was filming. If you could see the footage, you would see that over time, many people walked right on past him. Some even went out of their way to avoid him. He returned there every day for about a week. And then on a Sunday morning, he got up and he wheeled his shopping trolley in through the open doors of the church, walked the aisle all the way to the front, removed his wig and his false beard and his jacket filled with holes and to the surprise of all revealed that he was the pastor and told them about his experiment. All designed to see how the church was doing with those who are harder to love. What he said next might surprise you and so I'm going to keep it later in the message. But you can be sure as eggs that there were more than a few open mouths that morning at church that day. See, it's easy for us to make up our minds about people based on appearances and there were some in the church's of the first century, such as at Corinth, who, as we heard last year, who'd made their minds up that way about the Apostle Paul as well. When we worked through 1 Corinthians last year, we came across it in smaller detail, as we do in this part of the letter of Paul to the church at Thessalonica this morning. In fact, reading between the lines, you might be able to glean that there was a charge levelled against Paul based upon a misunderstanding of his actions. And this charge hurt him. And this charge against him was this. Some were saying to the believers at Thessalonica, Paul doesn't love you anymore. Otherwise, he would have been to see you. This implied, of course, that Paul was not sincere in his love for these believers, that he was some sort of love them but then leave them kind of apostle who got out when things around him got a little bit tough. The charge was that he wasn't one to stick around when he was most needed and if anything, this was a time when these believers needed him the most. And in answering this charge, as we saw partly last week and now this week, Paul has already told of the passion that he had for these believers. In verse 17 of chapter 2, he spoke of being torn away from them. Uh, The term torn away literally means bereaved. 
He spoke of an intense longing uh, to be with them. At the heart of this word idea is the idea of lust, but not in a sinful sense. And Paul uses these words to convey the depth of the feelings that he had to these believers. But we've also seen that Paul was concerned for these believers for two reasons we established in the last few weeks. On the one hand, they, he feared that they might be unsettled by the trials and the persecution that had come upon them. And on the other hand, that they might have been tempted by the tempter and that all of Paul's efforts to ground them in the truth would be futile. Paul knew that the devil was seeking to hinder his every move and seeking to undo whatever work that he did in the Lord's name. And so when he sent Timothy to them to bring a report back on their progress, Paul could not wait to hear what Timothy had to report and say. And when Timothy came back and when Timothy brought a report from the believers at Thessalonica that was glowing and that was good, the apostle was beside himself with joy and therefore this background, this joy sets the scene for today's text from chapter 3 verses 6 to 13 in which Paul sets forth something of his defence of his absence through these two headings. First from this text in verses 6 to 8, we find the heights of the Apostle's delight. A Timothy came back with good news, but Paul had already left Athens and was in Corinth now, so Timothy's journey had to be extended just to join him there. But it was worth it. Paul ended up not only being far away, but over the moon. Uh, To Paul's great relief, Timothy reported that his work had not been in vain. It stood solid and sure. The faith of these believers was intact. Their love was evident. And best of all, their trust in God was secure. Further, they held cherished memories of the Apostle and longed to see him. And all this information so overwhelmed Paul, he could not contain himself, as we read in verse 8. For now we really live, he said. Now we really live. One translation puts it like this, now we can breathe again. Another says, now we've been given a new lease of life. Such was the depth of his concern for these fledgling children in the faith. It's no wonder that Paul was filled with thankfulness and joy and joy at this good news. Like a father who reads his child's good school report or even deeper than that, like the father in the parable of the prodigal son who was so overwhelmed with joy when his son returned home alive. Maybe you think this is all a little bit, well, over the top. Maybe you think that Paul's emotional attachment to them is a bit too much, a bit too strong. That his language, his expressions, like when he says, now we really live, are a little bit exaggerated. After all, why the unbearable suspense when there was no news 
And why the overwhelming joy when there was good news? Why these fervent prayers? Why this concern and anxiety that show how much Paul's life was bound up in the lives of these believers? These are the questions I wrestled with as I thought about the passage. The answer that came to me is that Paul's language is the language of a parent who loves their child. This is the language of a parent who's separated from their child and therefore anxious about their child, especially when there is no news and conversely when there is, when there is good news, they are overwhelmed with joy. So whether consciously or unconsciously, in this letter, Paul is giving an example of what it means to be a true shepherd to the flock of God. John Stott, writing on these verses, says that pastoral ministry, that is, caring for other people spiritually, is a parental ministry. Pastoral ministry is a parental ministry. The Apostle John said something similar in his third letter, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. The heights of the Apostle's joy. Secondly, we find in verses 8 to 13, the depths of the Apostle's prayers the depths of the Apostles' prayers. Verse 10 says, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul speaks here of the praying that he and his co-workers have been doing on behalf of these believers. Earnest and continuous prayer. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us, should it? Because for Paul, prayer was the main thing. Prayer was the core and the heart of all that he did. For us, we might blush and say, well, earnest and continuous prayer happens when we're pushed beyond our limits, when we're frightened out of our wits, when we're pressed out of our comfort zones. Then we might pray with intensity, but not so with Paul. This was bread and butter stuff for him. But what Paul knew and what we must realise is that we are always needy people. We are inadequate, we are deficient, we are desperately dependent upon God. Without him we can do nothing and prayer is the highest expression of that dependence. Paul's life, like the life of Jesus, was marked by continuous prayer, triggered by continuous need, morning and evening, whether working on his tents or walking the streets of the city, his prayers flowed out of the heart of concern and love. These believers were seldom out of his thoughts and whenever he thought of them, he prayed. And so having referred to his earnest and continuous prayers, verses 11, 13 to 13, Paul tells us what he's been praying for. Three things. At first he prayed that God might clear the way for him to return to them that God would make straight or level the way that Satan had cut up, that the obstacles that Satan had thrown in the way that God would remove. That prayer was answered about five years later toward the end of Paul's third missionary journey in Acts chapter 20. Five years later. 
Then second, he prayed that their love might increase for each other and reach unbelievers as well. There's one thing you'll notice about Paul's prayers that is never there. Paul never prays for the outward circumstances to change. He never prays for circumstances to change. He always prays for himself or for his people to change in the midst of those circumstances. He's interested in an inward change, not an outward change. And how does that manifest itself here? He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and to all. You see, what was he coming to supply to the Thessalonians? What was their lack? Paul spoke about their lack. Did they have some lack in the faith? No, they needed further instruction. That's what Paul wants to give them. What is that further instruction? How to abound in love for one another and for all. This is the sole petition that Paul asks for them. Did you notice that? It's the only thing that he prays for. May the Lord make you do this. Love. Grow in love for one another and for all people. When life is hard, what do you pray for? Most of us, if we're honest, will say, I pray for a different life. I pray for my life to change. My circumstances beat me up six days a week. I come here on the seventh day and I'm still beat up. And the great thing about coming to corporate worship is that we get to hear again and again and again that what we need is not a different life. We need a different love. We need to love Jesus more. We need to love others more. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, said our Lord. What was he referring to? It was love. The love that we experience from God in Jesus will transform our lives and we can't help but share that love spilling out over us, through us, into others' lives. That's what Paul is asking for. That word for abound here is unusual. It means to go to the point of overflowing. That's what he wants to see out of these Thessalonian believers. May God do this for you. That's his prayer. Love is the measure of Christian maturity. Love is the sign to the unbelieving world that God is present This sort of attitude just can't remain hidden. You can't attempt to hide this stuff under a bushel even if you wanted to. It shows when you truly love people. Love is the most powerful weapon in the spread of the gospel. The power of love in ministry. People often talk about what a successful ministry looks like and usually they're talking about numbers on seats or how many programs they're operating. The New Testament, however, measures success by how much people learn to love each other, forgive each other, support and pray for each other and reach out to the lost world around us. The third thing he prayed for was that the Lord would establish their hearts in holiness, that they might continue to live righteously until the Lord comes with his saints. Paul is praying here with a long-term perspective. He's asking that these believers have strong hearts 
to stand firm and be godly until the end of their days or the end, the time of Christ's return. He was praying that they'd be strengthened for the long haul. There is a sense in which we are already blameless and holy. God looks upon us and sees us washed clean through Jesus' death on the cross and yet there's much work to be done, isn't there? We continue to sin and disobey. And one day when sin is finally dealt with, we'll be blameless and holy in reality in a new way. And of course we have a great incentive to work towards that end for we know that Jesus will return, as Paul said, with his holy ones, with his angels and that will be a great day and we will need to be ready and that's why Paul is praying as he does. He wants none of his church to fail to be ready for the master's return which as we've heard in this letter is always in view referred to at the end of each chapter and here it is here again. Well as we look back chapters 2 and 3 this long section in which Paul has talked about his relationship with these believers I hope you can see two things we need to apply to ourselves. First let's learn something from the commitment Paul showed to these believers. We've seen already how Paul responded to those who levelled charges against him by defending his ministry and explaining his failure to return to them and how it must have hurt Paul. It it always hurts when people criticise what they perceive as your weakness when you feel it's your greatest strength. That hurts. Therefore, while this element of self-defence of his attitudes is here on show and while we should be in no doubt of what, what we see in Paul's heart, there's more just to note than these things, isn't there? After hearing about this about Paul, there comes a time to ask ourselves, do I know any of these things? Do I know anything of this? That is, do I know anything of the depth of feeling the level of concern, the intensity of prayer for other believers. Now on a formal basis, not all of us have that responsibility. Some, like myself and the other elders, do. Others who are parents have that responsibility and you feel that for your children. But in a less formal setting, this must surely apply to each of us in relation to all of the rest of the church family. And in that sense, can I ask you, do you love the other members of the church family? Would you feel desperately sad if news came to you that they had fallen into temptation? Would you be elated to hear news of their spiritual growth? See, if we truly love one another as the scriptures call us to, then we'll be most concerned for each other's spiritual health and we'll be committed like Paul was to the task of being encouragers of one another. You're probably wondering why John Stott and Eric Nash are on the board in front of you. Uh, John Stott, we mentioned his quote earlier about pastoral ministry being a parental ministry. John Stott was a fine leader in the church in the West And we're all the poorer for his parting from us ten years ago. Stott said that one of the most influential men in his life was a man called Eric Nash. 
who led him to Christ. But the story didn't finish with that. After he became a Christian, uh, John, uh, Eric Nash took the trouble to visit John Stott at boarding school and most impressive of all, he wrote to him every week for five years. Another letters were chatty or shallow. Each of them were mini-talks encouraging John Stott to grow as a believer and giving him practical advice on how to live the Christian life. Such was Nash's commitment to John Stott and only years later did John Stott discover that Eric Nash prayed for him every day. That's what I'm talking about. The world was blessed by John Stott but they didn't hear about Eric Nash. Eric Nash was following Paul's model who in turn followed the model shown by Jesus who loved those that the Lord God had given him to parent and to love and to disciple. And the Gospels tell us that he loved them not in part, not just for a time, but to the very end. That's a challenge. That's a challenge. Just encouragement into someone else's life can bring about someone who blessed the world like John Stott. And then secondly, let's learn what pleased Paul about these believers. What really excited him was that they were still Christians and they were growing. Faith and love were evident among them and that was the most important thing and that's all it took to please Paul. He was relieved, thankful, joyful, overwhelmed because of faith and love. John Calvin says about these two words, in faith and love, he says, Paul gives a brief summary of all godliness. All godliness can be summed up in those two words. Believing God's promises and his word, trusting in Jesus as he is offered in the gospel, faith, love, loving God, loving one another, loving our neighbours. He sums up the whole of the Christian life in those two words, faith and love. These believers at Thessalonica were trusting in Christ as offered in the gospel. They were loving God. They were loving one another. They were loving their neighbours. It's no wonder that Paul was excited by this. It's this and nothing less that must be the aim of every one of his disciples who seek to walk in the ways of the Lord, to see them growing in faith and abounding in love. These are the fruits that the Lord wants us to to show. And sadly, that fact can be lost upon us. See, there's no references in the scriptures to the fruit of seeing arguments won. There's no references to the fruit of judgments being passed. There's no references to the fruit of the letter of the law being upheld. There's no references to the fruit of theological correctness and precision. But there are plenty references to these pair of fruits together. Faith and love. Both appear in 1 Corinthians 13. So now faith, hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Both appear in 2 Corinthians 8. 
But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and love, both appear in 2 Timothy 1. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. See the point? Faith and love. Oh, and maybe the end of the story might help. I left you waiting to hear what it was that the pastor said to his people. Well, I'll tell you. To the question, how did we do in showing love for the hard to love, the pastor said, we did awesome. I was crying inside my beard. I cannot believe the people in this church, especially those who prayed with me and brought me food. The video camera footage proceeded to show the members of the church doing just that, showing him the love that they had received from God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not hard. It's not rocket science. It's just conveying what God has given you in Christ conveying what you have received from others, uh, from him, sorry, to others that you meet. Faith and love, that's what it took to please the Apostle Paul. Faith and love, that's what it takes to please the Lord. Let's pray together for that. Father, forgive us when we think that Things are so much more complicated than they are. And we think that somehow we have to build some kind of structure, some foundation, some thing upon which all things will be measured when all you tell us is that we are to trust your word and love others as we have been loved. Forgive us when we make that too complicated. And forgive us when we overlook what is so vital and so necessary. And these things we pray for ourselves. I pray for myself as a pastor of your people. But I pray that your people will also love each other and have this parental ministry to one another. Give us concern, Lord, for the health and the welfare of one another in Christ. Give us concern that we would mean that we would encourage where we can encourage and commitment to each other in Christ that will be something greater than what the world sees in its own organisations. Only you can do this, Lord, because only you can bring about the reality of change in hardened hearts, in hearts that know not what love is. So reach into us. Mould us afresh as we seek to share what we've received out of the goodness and overabundant abundant grace and love you have given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's respond to God's word. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way.